today on Filmmaker Freedom, the single most comprehensive guide anywhere on the internet for choosing a profitable niche audience for your micro-budget films. And make no mistake, if you want to succeed as an indie film entrepreneur, being able to target profitable niche audiences is the single most important skill for you to learn and master. In Pareto principle terms or 80-20 principle terms, getting your niche right is the 20% of efforts that will drive 80% of your results. In other words, you could be a mediocre filmmaker and an amateur marketer who has no clue what they're doing. But if you follow through on what's coming in this podcast, you'll still be set up for financial success, even in this absurdly competitive media landscape. So for that reason, what's coming up is easily the most impactful piece of content that I have ever created, whether on my website or on the podcast or anywhere else. And honestly, it might be one of the most impactful in the entire indie filmmaking niche. Now, that's obviously a bold statement, and you might think I'm a bit full of myself, but I swear to you, it is not hyperbole. If you take what I'm about to share and apply it, you will be able to build a sustainably profitable business around your films. You'll be that rare indie filmmaker who earns a comfortable, consistent living from their work, while everyone else is still out there spinning their wheels, waiting for some festival or distributor or gatekeeper to pluck them from obscurity and write them a check, which, as we all know, is about as likely as winning the lottery. So, if you're dedicated and committed to this path of indie film entrepreneurship, you are in the right place. Finding the perfect niche is the foundation on which your entire business will be built, and we are about to dig extraordinarily deep into that very topic. So let's get to it. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who wanna make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their business. Though I'd initially given up on the idea of making a living with indie films, after years of working in the world of marketing, I saw that many of the strategies that worked for other types of companies could be applied to indie film, with a few tweaks, of course. So that's what these solo episodes of Filmmaker Freedom are, a living, breathing document of everything I've learned about marketing, entrepreneurship, creating work that resonates, and living a good life. And one last thing before we begin, I just want to thank my good friends over at Musicvine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Musicvine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding, the prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into the practical lesson at the heart of today's episode.
Okay, so just a quick note before we get into the content that's coming your way, which is so, so juicy. But I originally made this as a article for the website, and it's got a ton of detail, and it's all linked, and there's custom graphics and all sorts of stuff. Um, So it might be best consumed as an article. So if you want to access the written version, you can find it at filmmakerfreedom.com slash blog slash niche. And I should probably come up with some kind of short link for that. But um, if you just go to the Filmmaker Freedom website, you'll find it. And the other thing I should mention before we dive in is that this is just part two of four in a series about targeting niche audiences. So if you'll remember part one, the last episode of the show was all about um, why we need to niche down and why that's the only way for us to survive in this crazy media landscape that's dominated by folks like Disney and Netflix and whatnot. This one is how to choose a niche that's perfect for you. And then in the final two installments, we're going to get into how to conduct niche research so you can validate ahead of time whether your niche is going to be a profitable, enjoyable place to spend your time. And then in the final installment, I'm going to teach you a process that I call audience mapping that will help you tell incredibly resonant stories and make incredibly resonant content for your niche. So yeah, those are my notes um, prior to getting into this. And if you're ready, it's time to get into the weeds on how to choose a niche audience. So buckle up. So to kick things off, I just want to do a quick recap on why micro-budget filmmakers absolutely must niche down. Because again, we talked about it in depth in the first part of this series, um, but it's really important to understand this concept. So as indie filmmakers and specifically indie film entrepreneurs, we are on the front lines in a brutal, brutal war for consumer attention. Our competition is not only the likes of Disney and Netflix, but also YouTube, Facebook, and every other billion-dollar company whose survival depends on attention. And their strategy, at least in the media realm, can basically be summed up as, one, create insane amounts of flashy, high-end content, two, make all of that content as broadly appealing as possible, and then three, spend insane amounts of money to reach the mass market, to get in front of as many eyeballs as possible. That right there is basically the mega corporation playbook for winning attention in the modern economy. Now, obviously, that is a game of resources. And as indie filmmakers, we can't compete. There's just no way in hell. We don't have the money, the infrastructure, the time to win mass market attention like that, especially not if we're producing similarly generic media ourselves. However, When we focus on a niche audience and create media specifically for this group of people, the underlying economics and consumer behavior change. In fact, when you make this shift, competition from mega corporations practically disappears. For this specific group, for your niche, they are going to choose your film over the new Marvel movie every single time because your film is perfectly tailored to their interests and their worldview. Basically, choosing and serving a niche allows us to be the biggest, baddest, most dominant fish in our own little lake, as opposed to being some tiny, inconsequential microbe in the vast ocean of commodity media. And that, in a nutshell, is why micro-budget filmmakers must target niche audiences. It's the only viable way for us to survive and actually build sustainable businesses in a media ecosystem that's completely dominated right now by the likes of Netflix and Disney. In this next section, we talked about a little bit in the last episode as well, but I really want to make sure you understand the core concept of what a niche is. And very simply, a 
niche is a group of people who are bound together by one or more shared characteristics. So here are a few examples. In the niche of faith-based films, the shared characteristic is a unifying religious belief. For my friend Mike Dion, the guy who makes endurance cycling documentaries, the shared characteristic in his audience is a deep interest in the sport of bikepacking. For films with LGBTQ characters and themes, the shared element is membership in or maybe support of the LGBTQ community. At its core, this entire topic of choosing a niche is all about deciding which shared characteristics to focus on. So that's basically the entire goal of this lesson. We're going to dive really deep into how the niche media ecosystem works, the underlying psychology that drives it, and how to use this new model to your advantage. Plus, we're going to debunk the most common destructive piece of advice that indie filmmakers have gotten for years about how to niche down. And I'll give you a hint right now. Genre is not all it's cracked up to be. So by the end of this, you'll know which shared characteristics create viable niches for micro-budget films and which don't. And more than that, you're going to understand how to choose a niche that's the perfect fit for your own films and your own interests. You game? Let's keep going. All right. So the first big idea that I want to share with you is a model that I call the four categories of consumer media. And this might seem like a little bit of a, a detour, but it's important because it's all about zooming out and looking at the consumer media landscape as a whole. And then once you see the big picture, you'll also see that a lot of us indie filmmakers have been putting our energy in entirely the wrong place. So here's this new uh, meta model, if you want to call it that, of how the media ecosystem functions. And there are four general categories that most every type of consumer media fits into. Number one is factual. And this is media that informs us about what's true. So think news, journalism, nonfiction, storytelling, history, stuff like that. Number two is entertainment. And this is media with a purpose to entertain, obviously. So it's meant to entertain, comfort, distract. And this includes the vast majority of movies, most of what's on TV, most music, sports, video games, and so on. Number three is educational media. And this is media that helps an audience solve a pain, reach a goal, or better their lives in some way. Think of tutorials, inspirational media, really any kind of media that helps people move forward in some concrete way. And finally, the fourth category is identity-driven media. And this is media with the purpose of reinforcing personal and group identities and facilitating a sense of belonging. And we're going to get way more into this later because it is very, very important. Now, there's one thing that you should know about this model, and that's that these four categories aren't rigid and they're not static, and there is a ton of crossover between them. For instance, most sports, though broadly classified as entertainment, have a huge identity-driven component. For millions of people, their team affiliations are a core part of who they are. And I should know. For me, it's the Colorado Avalanche, who just last night, from when I recorded this, beat the Boston Bruins. Go Avs. Then you've got something like the History Channel, which at one point in time leaned towards actual, you know, history, which means factual media. But these days, the History Channel is basically a reality show factory that leans heavily in the entertainment category. But hey, you know, sometimes there's still a little bit of history sprinkled in for good measure. And then finally, the most concerning example for me is that most news these days tries to present itself as factual media, as objective media. But in reality, the majority of it is identity-driven entertainment. 
It's like an identity-driven circus. And once you learn about the concept of identity feedback loops later in this article, you will understand just how dangerous this trend is. And in the written version of this, I have a quick side note, um, and it's that I have spent the past two months pretty disconnected from almost all news, and holy shit, you guys, what a difference that has made in the quality of my life and my mental state. Um, it'd be worth it if it was just for the reduction in anxiety that I felt, but it's also led to really deep focus and substantial gains in productivity. I mean, the the transcript or the written version of this thing is like 9,000 words, which is nuts. It's like a quarter of a book. Anyhow, I am increasingly convinced that most modern news is straight up cancer for the soul. And I cannot recommend highly enough that you cut it out or just greatly reduce how much you consume. Um, and you might be skeptical because you want to stay informed, but at least give it a try and see how you feel. It might just give you a nice edge in your creative entrepreneurial endeavors like it has for me. So the point is, this model, the four different categories, it's not about creating like a precise definition or precise categories for any individual piece of media. Instead, it's about giving you a valuable new lens for how to view your work and see how it fits into the broader media landscape. So now let's get into how this model applies to indie filmmakers, and more specifically, why you've been lied to or misled about the value of genre when it comes to niching down. Um, so for the time being, let's forget about factual and educational media. Um, those might still have a place in an entrepreneurial filmmaking business. But for now, the big shift, the aha moment, is going to come when we focus on the entertainment and identity-driven categories. So as filmmakers, we've all been taught to see our films purely through the lens of entertainment. After all, most of us grew up immersed in Hollywood films, and we see our own work as a continuation of that culture. Um, and if you've ever tried to learn about the business of filmmaking and you've ever looked into what it means to niche down, you've seen that creators of movie-based entertainment, that phrase niching down has almost always meant leaning into a specific genre. That's why we're told that sci-fi movies are niche, that westerns are niche, that romantic comedies are niche. Now, for the major studios, these broad genre categories absolutely are niche compared to their usual target audience of everyone on the planet. But for indie filmmakers, these genre categories are so big, so generic, and so saturated with high-budget media that we don't actually stand much chance of competing. So let me just walk you through an example here. Let's imagine that you make an indie romantic comedy and it costs you $50,000. But it just so happens that it's going head-to-head -head with a studio-backed rom-com with a budget of $50 million starring somebody like Jennifer Lawrence, let's say. Now, for this example to work, we have to pretend it's maybe 2010 or earlier because, frankly, studios don't make many rom-coms anymore. They're into franchise films and cinematic universes and all that because that's where the big, big money is. Um, and if you're curious as to why and how this shift happened, um, I really recommend Ben Fritz's great book, The Big Picture. Anyhow, back to our hypothetical example. Technically, both of these films are going after the same quote-unquote niche. And you, as the indie filmmaker, might feel supremely confident about your chances of making money. After all, you targeted a specific niche, right? Wrong. In this case, your little indie doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell when it comes to winning the war for consumer attention. That Jennifer Lawrence studio movie is absolutely going to crush your soul. Because like it or not, audiences who like and gravitate towards romantic comedies 
would likely never even hear about your project, given that you don't have millions to spend on marketing like the studio does. And even if they were to hear about your film, they'd have zero reason to choose yours over the studio offering. Given two romantic comedies with similar stories, similar scripts, but drastically different budgets, which do you think mass market audiences are going to choose? Really think about that for a second. The answer is the studio film with Jennifer Lawrence. That's where people are going to put their attention. And this right here is the problem with viewing our work purely as entertainment and seeing genre as a useful tool for niching down. Because even though we think we're targeting a specific niche when we make genre films, we're just playing in a slightly smaller sandbox that's still completely dominated by Hollywood. Point is, when we set out to produce genre entertainment, we haven't actually niched down at all. We're still targeting mass market audiences just in slightly narrower form. Basically, if you listen to the last episode, we're still playing Hollywood's game. And as you know, that game is rigged against indie filmmakers from the start. Without Hollywood's production and marketing resources, there's just no way for us to compete and win the attention of the same consumers that they are targeting. That gets to the point that I'm trying to get to here. And that's that as indie filmmakers, we have been seriously, woefully misled about the value of genre. Yes, it is a wonderful creative tool and you should use it to all of its glorious creative potential. But when it comes to leveraging genre to reach and monetize niche audiences, it's a losing proposition, plain and simple, no doubt about it. Now, let's get back to the four categories of consumer media. Here is the big, big shift that changes everything in this equation. As micro-budget filmmakers, we need to shift from producing genre entertainment to identity-driven stories. Now, this doesn't mean our work shouldn't be entertaining. Of course it should, obviously. We still need to tell stories that keep butts in the seats and keep people engaged over the course of our films. But what it does mean is that the underlying purpose of our work changes. Instead of existing solely to occupy 90 minutes of someone's time, only to be forgotten soon thereafter, our films now exist in order to connect with audiences on the basis of identity. And this is an extraordinarily powerful thing, as you're about to find out in the next section. But before we can get into the mechanics of identity and explore how niches are created, I want you to consider this quote from Michael Gerber, who wrote one of the best business books of all time, as far as I'm concerned, called The E-Myth Revisited. Here's the quote. The truth is, nobody's interested in the commodity. People buy feelings. And as the world becomes more and more complex and the commodities more varied, the feelings we want become more urgent, less rational, and more unconscious. How your business anticipates those feelings and satisfies them is your product. I love this quote so freaking hard. And as you move through the rest of this lesson and see the immense emotional power and emotional magnetism of identity-driven media, um, it's going to make more and more sense. Like this quote is just going to click as to why I love it. Um, but for now, here's how I see this idea of commodification of media versus emotion playing out for filmmakers. In a world with abundant commodity media, much of it free, targeting and creating for identity groups is what allows us to operate on that deeper level that Michael Gerber is talking about and stand apart in the market despite the fact that there's so many things competing for consumer attention. If, on the other hand, you seek to create mere entertainment, 
your film will be just another commodity in a world that's overflowing with commodity movies. And you'll stand no chance of winning consumer attention away from the likes of Disney. But this identity model, as you're about to learn, allows you to satisfy those deep primal desires that Gerber is talking about in the quote. When identity is the driver of your work, you're automatically creating films that matter so much more than a generic movie ever could. They matter more to you because they're aligned with your deepest interests and beliefs, and they matter more to your audience for the same reason. The films you'll create are just more relevant, and your stories will resonate with every fiber of your audience's being. And as the rest of the media world and these giant corporations and conglomerates and whatnot invest more and more into creating commodity media to reach bigger, more generic audiences, there is a massive opportunity for anyone willing to niche down like this and focus on identity. So now that we've set the stage, so to speak, let's dig deeper into this concept of identity. Because when you understand what's going on beneath the surface, the psychological strings that are being pulled, a vast new world of possibility will open up for you. Okay, so the thing you need to know about identity is that it's the psychological key that completely unlocks this puzzle of finding a profitable niche audience. So let's start with a definition. Um, and this one comes from the American Psychological Association. Identity, an individual's sense of self defined by A, a set of psychological, physical, and interpersonal characteristics that is not wholly shared with any other person, and B, a range of affiliations like ethnicity and social roles. Identity involves a sense of continuity or the feeling that one is the same person today that one was yesterday or last year, despite physical or other changes. So that's the definition. Basically, identity is about the individual characteristics that we use to define ourselves. And once we've defined ourselves, that definition tends to cement itself and stick around. And it's this last piece, the sense of continuity, that I want to go deeper on. Because there's an underlying psychological mechanism here that is hugely relevant to anyone looking to find a niche for their films. So now I'd like to introduce you to a concept that I call identity feedback loops. Now, in biological or mechanical system, a feedback loop occurs when the output of the system somehow strengthens the input. So think of an electric guitar that gets too close to its amp. Eventually, the sound from the amp resonates the strings of the guitar, um, which then feeds back through the guitar's pickups, which in turn goes straight back into the amp, and so on. It creates a feedback loop. And eventually, it creates an uncontrollable sound that, um, depending on your musical dispositions is either really rad or total cacophony. Either way, who knows? Anyhow, with identity, there are two separate but equally powerful forces that cause a feedback loop like this. The first, we consume media, products, and experiences that are in line with our identity. In other words, our identity drives many of our consumption and spending decisions. So that's the first piece. The second is that we seek to surround ourselves with people who share that piece of our identity. And that's because belonging is a core psychological need. And being part of a shared identity group is one of only a handful of ways for us to fulfill that need. Now, when you take both of these things together, it creates a powerful feedback loop. When we consume things that are in line with our identity, that piece of our identity is reinforced. It becomes stronger. The same thing happens when we surround ourselves, either you know, physically or digitally, with other people who share our identity. 
And then the stronger our identity becomes, the more we feel the need to consume and associate in line with it. And it's through these patterns of consumption and association that our identities tend to cement themselves into permanence over time. Now, you might already be starting to see this, but identity feedback loops are the foundational underlying mechanism that give birth to profitable niche audiences. This is how profitable niches are created. And there are plenty of other implications for these feedback loops. Um, The implications are actually pretty staggering. They affect everything from our health to our habits, to our politics, to our overall well-being. But for now, let's just focus on the business implications. For starters, identity is one of the key levers that drives consumption and purchase decisions. So when you align your films and whatever ancillary products you have with an identity group, you're automatically creating what's known in the startup world as product market fit. This is how you create media that's hyper relevant to a group of people and that resonates so much with them, the competition from generic Hollywood movies and shows becomes irrelevant. We've been talking about this already. So even if Hollywood outspends you by a factor of a million, and they will, if you have product market fit with a specific niche audience, a specific identity group, they will choose to spend their time, attention, and money with you. Huge, right? Not only that, but because of the self-reinforcing nature of identity feedback loops, there's basically never-ending demand for your films and your content. So if you keep producing, your audience will keep consuming. And this, of course, is one of the necessary foundations for sustainable long-term business. And that's repeat customers, of course. And it gets better. Since most identity-driven communities are fairly well-connected, meaning everyone talks to each other, um, and we're going to get more into that in a second, um, but because these communities are so well-connected, there's a much higher likelihood that if your films are good or even, you know, just passable, they will spread via word of mouth and they will continue to sell organically over time. So if you create a solid body of work within a niche, you could generate substantial residual income for those films and ancillary products for years to come, even if you're not actively marketing or even if you leave the niche entirely. Pretty rad, right? But again, it gets better. So back in the day before the internet, we were limited in who we could associate with. Our interests might have been super weird or super niche, but if the people in our local communities didn't share those interests, we couldn't find that sense of belonging around those pieces of our identity. And in many ways, this whole dynamic made culture rather boring and static. Mainstream culture was the culture, as many niche communities and interests and cultures just didn't have the connection or reach to gain any foothold. But as you can guess, the internet has completely changed all of that. These days, we are all connected globally, and we have the power to embrace the strangest, most out there aspects of our identities and still quote unquote, find our people. There are no longer any physical barriers to associating with niche identity groups. With a few keystrokes and mouse clicks, you can find, join, participate in communities, consume media, all of which is deeply aligned with your interests. Now, there are two factors to consider here. The first is identity feedback loops, or our psychological need for connection and consumption. And the second is the internet's power to deliver those experiences. When you combine those two factors we see the creation of hundreds of thousands of viable niches online. Hell, there might even be millions when you get into things like identity stacking, which we'll talk about later. Anywhere that identity groups congregate online to converse and consume media, 
that is a potentially viable niche for us to insert ourselves into. Basically, identity feedback loops when paired with the internet create a perfect storm of circumstances that allow indie filmmakers to break free from the traditional film business and create for hungry niche audiences. Okay, all of that lives pretty high up in the land of theory, so let's bring it back down and look at a practical example from my own life. We're going to deconstruct my own identity. So for those of you who don't know me, you should know that I am rather obsessed with jazz music. And I don't know why exactly, but if I had to guess, I think it all goes back to my grandfather, Carol Hardy, who was a jazz DJ in Buffalo, New York back in the 70s. And listening to old episodes of his show, I just feel this sense that jazz is somehow in my DNA. And originally, I was just going to tell you to go to the, the main article version of this lesson because I have one of those old recordings of his linked up there. But then I was like, wait a minute, this is a podcast. I can just play it for you. So uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Here is my grandfather, Carol Hardy, in his super awesome jazz show. Enjoy the brief snippet. out of the sound of jazz this is carol hardy with you until 1 a.m i'm going to tell you about some good music that i heard last night in a little while i'll tell you right now ron carter quartet incredible but anyway we got a couple of old things to get into tonight a couple of new things maybe you haven't heard before we'll start out with the old one see if you recognize this band That is just so freaking cool. And it's kind of uh, it's kind of trippy listening to him and then listening to me side by side. And we're both doing this thing where he's broadcasting to the radio. I'm on a podcast. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of a mind trip for me. But anyhow, the point is that I freaking love me some jazz. And as you might guess from the identity feedback loop model, this has driven so many of my purchase and association decisions, especially in regards to the media I consume. So for instance, I own and have watched multiple times all 19 hours of Ken Burns' series on the history of jazz. When Damien Chazelle's film Whiplash hit theaters, I went and saw it three times. And of course, I own the Blu-ray. Um, La La Land is also fun, but it's a little bit vanilla for my hardcore jazz sensibilities. Uh, it's a great date movie, though. Another example, a few years back, there was an indie documentary about my favorite jazz musician, Bill Evans. You can bet your bottom dollar that I bought it without so much as a second thought. There's an amazing public jazz radio station in Denver called KUVO. Even though I don't live in Denver anymore, I'm in Tucson these days, I'm still a supporting member. I still give them money every single month and I listen daily. Not to mention that I follow hundreds of jazz musicians across social media, belong to dozens of Facebook groups, newsletters, etc. Hell, I'm also a guitarist, and I have spent ungodly amounts of money on beautiful archtop guitars and jazz guitar lessons. Here's the point of all this. Because jazz is a core part of my identity, I have parted with a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of my attention but I feel great about it. I feel absolutely thrilled to have spent my resources that way. I didn't need to see dozens of ads to be convinced to go see Whiplash or to buy the Ken Burns series. 
This stuff was hyper relevant to my interests, so I actively sought it out. This is the identity feedback loop working its magic. But it's not just jazz. I'm equally obsessed with marketing and entrepreneurship, playing guitar, personal development, fitness, um, lately CrossFit, which I never thought I would get into, but that shit is really, really communal and hardcore and awesome. Um, anyhow, but then there's cooking. And of course, um, to top that list off, I'm very obsessed with filmmaking. So now imagine that you're a filmmaker and you're trying to reach someone like me as your audience as part of your niche. If you wanted to make films around any of those above identity categories, I would automatically choose your work over standard Hollywood fare any day of the week. Why? Because I want to consume things that are relevant to me. I want to consume stories that serve my underlying need to validate and reinforce my sense of self. And I'm willing to bet the same is true for you. And I can guarantee it's true for the vast majority of people on this planet. All right. This next section is called How to Use Identity to Niche Down. And first things first, we're going to go over the various elements of personal identity. And in the article version of this, I have a, a pretty fancy like mind map graphic where this is all laid out, but I'm just going to read some of these. And these are the various categories that might make up someone's personal identity. So first, you might have roles in relation to other people. So things like mother, leader, creator, etc. You might have deep personal values, justice, autonomy, growth. Nationality is a great category, so that's American, Nigerian, Australian, etc. Hobbies are a very core part of many people's identities, so that might be fly fishing, bike packing, or putting wooden ships in a bottle. People's professions are a huge one, so that might be surgeon, teacher, firefighter, and so on. And oftentimes, major transitions in our lives can be part of our identity, these times when we're embracing a new part of ourself. So that might be a relationship transition, a business transition, or if you lose a loved one. Next, politics. Oh my God, politics is a huge one right now. So that might be progressive or libertarian or conservative. And you can also break politics out into various other categories that are political right now. So gender and skin color and all of these things. And then obviously you've got religion, so Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, so on. Your generation might be part of your identity. So I'm a millennial, but then you've got boomers, you've got Gen Z, you've got the greatest generation. I don't know that there are people from that generation who are still alive, but you get the point. And then you have causes, things that we believe in. So that might be saving the rainforests, ending global poverty, free-range parenting, You've got fandoms, so that might be Marvel or Star Wars or Fortnite, or it might be a sports team. Um, you've got certain things in the realm of health and fitness, so CrossFit, veganism, keto these days. Um, and then you might have circumstances or phases of life, so the being in college or getting married or joining the military. Okay, so that's everything that's covered in the graphic, and it's pretty crazy how many different ways that we can define ourselves, right? And what's even crazier is that this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are likely dozens more identity categories, and within each of those categories, probably hundreds or thousands of examples within each one. The point is, when it comes to identity-driven niches, you are rarely at a loss for choice. And if you remember back in the old model, if you wanted to quote-unquote niche down, you were limited to a handful of genres. But with the identity model, there are no limits whatsoever. The full range of psychological diversity in the human species 
is fair game. Okay, next up, I want to talk about the art of identity stacking or how to create infinite niche ideas. So once you start looking into any of the identity groups above, you're going to notice that many of them are incredibly big and broad and likely have millions of people in them. And this presents a couple of problems. But most obviously, the more people in any given niche, the more competition there's going to be for their attention. And remember, the whole purpose of niching down is to break free from the brutal war for consumer attention and to win the attention of a smaller segment of people through being more relevant. That is the entire goal of what we're doing here. But if the niche you choose is too big, you're shooting yourself in the foot right out of the gate. Now, I can't think of a better example of this than faith-based films. Now, this is a huge, huge massive niche, and it's proven over the years to be far more profitable, far more consistently than just about any other type of film. Um, and that right there is the power of tapping into underserved identity groups, especially those who feel disconnected from and alienated by a lot of what else Hollywood puts out. Um, so there's just so much opportunity to create for niches like that. But again, in the faith-based world, this niche is so big that you, as a micro-budget filmmaker, don't stand much chance of competing there, at least not directly. There are dozens of well-funded filmmakers and even studios and streaming platforms that are already dominating that space. So the question then becomes, how can you niche down even further? And that's where a technique called identity stacking comes in. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Identity stacking is when you combine two or more identity groups, then you focus on the crossover between them. Here are a few examples for you. So instead of focusing on the entire faith-based niche, you could niche down to a specific subset of the faith, like Roman Catholics, or you could be the purveyor of faith-based horror films. Um, and that might already exist, but it's an example. And a quick side note here, horror is probably the only genre that is an identity group unto itself. For horror fans, and I should know this because I am one, their love of horror is a core part of who they are. And you just can't say the same about dramas or comedies or thrillers or whatever. So horror is an identity group, but other genres are not. Uh, but back to identity stacking. Another example is maybe you combine two categories from above. For example, social role plus hobby. So that might give you possible niches like moms who love crafting or corporate workers who yearn for freedom or even baby boomers who dig CrossFit. Again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So look back or listen back to the various elements of personal identity and you will see unlimited ways to combine them and to create identity stacks. But that still leaves one important question. How big of a niche should you target with your films if you want to make a living with this? And that's where the concept of minimum viable audience comes in, or MVA for short. So as a general rule of thumb, the larger the group that you're trying to target, the more competition you'll have, and the harder and more expensive it'll be to gain traction. However, when you think not in terms of the biggest possible group you can reach, but instead the smallest viable one, great things stem from that mindset. Because this is how you create an uncontested market for yourself where you're the dominant filmmaker and competition is irrelevant. It's also how you build deeper relationships with customers, all the while breaking free from the commoditization of media, and which allows you to also charge higher prices. So your minimum viable audience, again, MVA for short, is simply the smallest possible identity group that you can serve with your films while still being as profitable as you would like to be.
And your MVA is an actual number. And in order to find that number, you'll have to do some thinking about the following questions. Number one, how much money do you need on a yearly basis to feel secure, comfortable, and content? Basically, what's your quote-unquote enough number where all your needs are met and you're living a good life, at least financially speaking? Question two, on average, how expensive are your films going to be and how will you compensate your collaborators? Now, obviously, I'm very much biased towards keeping things on the micro-budget end of the spectrum, and I generally recommend paying your collaborators up front because that model allows you to keep the economics in your favor. However, if you want to make higher-budget films or if you want to compensate people on the back end, that's going to impact how big of a niche you need to target. Question number three, how will you monetize your films and how will you create secondary revenue streams around those films? So if you're just throwing your films up on Amazon Prime for streaming, you are going to have to reach a metric fuck ton of people to hit your financial targets. And that's especially true since this week, as I'm recording this, Amazon cut the minimum rate from six cents per hour streamed to one cent per hour streamed. So maybe now you have to reach a double metric fuck ton of people um, if you want to go on Amazon Prime streaming. It's just a bad proposition. However, if you're selling from your own platform where you keep the vast majority of the revenue and you have multiple tiers of ancillary digital and physical products, you have to reach far, far fewer people in order to hit your financial targets. And then finally, the fourth question is based on everything above, how many people roughly do you need to buy your films on a yearly basis in order for you to hit your targets? In other words, how many sales do you have to make to create the films that you want to make with the proper budgets while paying your collaborators well, paying yourself well, and then having some left over to invest back in your business. Now, before you dive into any math, consider one more important factor, and that's not everyone in your chosen niche will convert to a paying customer. In fact, it's safe to assume that at any given time, roughly 1% of the people in the niche will buy your film. Now, when you take advantage of some of the marketing strategies that I'll be teaching in future podcasts and articles and whatnot, um, especially the one around partnering with influencers and creating strategic partnerships, you're going to be able to push those conversion rates way, way higher than 1%. But for now, at least, it's best to keep the targets low and then overshoot expectations later. So all of that said, in order to find your minimum viable niche size, you need to multiply the number of yearly sales you need by 100. This, at least in a rough sense, is how big your niche needs to be to support you financially. Now, if you are anything like me, um, digging too deep into these questions might make your head spin a little bit because I am straight up allergic to math and spreadsheets and budgets and all of that. It just, ew, it's not my jam. However, I've done some simple math here for you um, so that you can get a ballpark of your MBA. And this is just back of napkin math speaking in generalities, but you'll be able to take this example and plug in some of your own numbers to, again, get your ballpark number. So here's the example. Let's say you aim to take home $70,000 per year, enough for a nice, comfortable middle-class lifestyle, provided that you're not in like New York City or San Francisco or something. And beyond that, your average micro-budget feature, which will take you know roughly a year to make, will cost you between twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars, including paying your small team of collaborators and covering all your marketing expenses and whatnot. Based on those two targets, 
your indie film business needs to bring in roughly $100,000 in yearly revenue and ideally a bit more to cover things like taxes, insurance, uh, whatnot. Now on the commerce side of things, you're going to sell digital copies of your film for 10 bucks a pop. And you're going to sell from your own platform so as to keep the majority of that revenue. Now, if that were going to be your only source of revenue, selling films for 10 bucks a pop, the math would be super, super easy. To make $100,000, you'd have to sell 10,000 copies of the film. Easy enough, right? However, you're not just selling copies of the film. You also plan to sell ancillary products and services and merch and all of that kind of stuff alongside the film. This one decision here reduces the number of people that you need to reach pretty dramatically. So now you'll be able to generate the same revenue, but only have to sell 5,000 copies at 10 bucks a piece. The rest is going to be covered by a couple hundred sales from your other products. So let's say to make our numbers nice and round that you need to make 5,500 sales in total throughout the year to hit your business's financial goals. That's not too scary, right? Now, assuming the conversion rate from total niche size to paying customer is 1%, we just have to multiply that number by 100. And voila, you've got 550,000. That is your minimum viable audience or the smallest niche size you should target and able to hit your financial goals. Now, at this point, you might be asking how on earth you could accurately measure niche size like this. And that's something that we're going to cover in the next installment in this series which is going to be all about conducting super precise audience research ahead of time. So stay tuned for that. And you might also be thinking that 550,000 is a shit ton of people, like an impossibly large number to reach and target with your films. But you have to remember and put things back in perspective. Compared to Hollywood, which is going after global markets of four plus billion active consumers, that 550,000 number is just a drop in the ocean. And compared to the nearly 8 billion people on Earth, your identity-driven niche only has to account for a minuscule fraction of 1% of everybody. And not to mention that because you're targeting an identity group and people who are going through identity feedback loops, these people that you're trying to reach are already congregating online in specific, easily accessible places, which makes them much, much easier to reach and communicate with. Now, that math above might still be a little bit intimidating to you, and it is a little bit intimidating, like feeling the pressure to have to make 5,500 sales in a year. It's still a lot. But the other thing that you should know here is that over time, as you build your audience and as you acquire customers, this math gets way, way more favorable to you. So again, if you're selling from your own platform instead of on iTunes or Amazon or whatever, you'll not only make more money with each sale, but you'll have each new customer's contact information. And I cannot stress just how crazy important this is. You'll be able to stay connected with your fans, keeping them in the loop with all your projects and building deeper, more meaningful relationships with them. And then when you've got new films or new products, or you're running a crowdfunding campaign or something, you can simply reach out and share it with an audience of people who already know you, like you, and trust you, and want you to succeed. And if you're making niche films for a specific audience... You can bet your ass that your past customers will absolutely want to buy every new film that you make or support your Kickstarter or whatever. Because remember, identity feedback loops. Consuming one thing based on our identity is never enough. Identity-driven consumers have an insatiable appetite for more and more content. 
And that's incredibly powerful. But we go a step beyond that when we build a long-term audience and a long-term email list. Not only are these people hungry for identity-driven content, but we've built a strong, meaningful connection with them. The people on our list and in our audience, they like us. They genuinely like us and they want us to succeed. So they'll be more than happy to whip out their credit cards when given half a chance. And this is how you create a truly unshakable foundation for your indie film business. And even if the economy goes into a recession or something like that, which many people think it's about to, um, this is when major studios start cutting back. But you, as an indie filmmaker, if you've built an audience like this, you'll still be able to keep making a living doing this. That's the power of what we're doing here. Okay, so let's take a quick breather. Like I said, this is a monster piece of content, right? And we're maybe three-fifths through it. There's still a ways to go. So this next section is all about positive versus negative identity and your moral responsibility when creating identity-driven media. So there are really two things that we need to cover in this section. First is the distinction between positive and negative identity. And I'm pretty sure you can intuit what that means. Basically, positive identity traits are ones that make us feel good about ourselves, that elicit a sense of pride. For instance, I take great pride in my love of jazz, if you couldn't tell from my whole section above. It's a core part of who I am, and I feel great about it. Negative identity, on the other hand, is all about identity traits and internalized stories that cause us to feel discomfort and shame about who we are. Um, another personal example here might be how overweight I was for much of my life. That was absolutely part of my identity, but I hated that piece of myself and it made me really uncomfortable to think about it or to interact with it. So the point is, as niche media creators, we want to tap into positive aspects of identity. These are the identity traits that create positive feedback loops and that allow us to tell stories that uplift people and that elicit a sense of pride and belonging so just keep that in mind as you're going through this whole process and choosing a niche. If you find that you're targeting an identity trait that causes internal discomfort or shame, not only are you setting yourself up for um, a hard time in a business sense, but it's uh, just kind of a dick move. So don't do it. Now, and the second thing I really want you to consider in this section is just how much power comes from tapping into identity. Um, and as the old saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. So identity feedback loops, along with increasing amounts of identity-driven media, are one of the psychological underpinnings for why the world feels so divided and fucked up right now. Um, and there's a few reasons for this, but I've really got them broken down into just a few things. So First off, more and more people are finding their identities in us versus them and good versus evil worldviews, such as the nature of our current political landscape. And then you've got media outlets, most of which are still driven by a broken advertising model, and they tend to push content that reinforces the worst, most sensational aspects of those identities. After all, that's what drives the most clicks and the most views and the most quote-unquote engagement. As a result of this whole ecosystem, we become more and more divided on the basis of identity, and we increasingly hate the other side of the aisle, like this blind, primal hate. And if we're not careful, this shit is going to pull the world apart. 
We're an inherently tribal species. It's in our DNA. And if we continue finding our identities and ideologies that emphasize the lack of humanity in quote unquote the other, it ends nowhere besides violence. And I know all of this sounds dramatic, but I believe it's so fucking important for you to understand this if you're going to go down the road of creating identity-driven media. Because when you create content that reinforces people's sense of identity, it can be either healing or harmful towards the world. And as creators, it's up to us to err as heavily as possible on the side of healing. So if you're targeting a religious or a political niche, I'm going to urge you to make common humanity a core tenant of your work instead of common enemies and common hatred. It may be more profitable at this moment in time to go down the rabbit hole of being as divisive as possible and to throw as many stones as possible. In fact, it almost surely is more profitable. But we know where that road leads, and it's not pretty. So please, 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 if you decide to adapt this model for your own work, do it responsibly and in a way that heals our divisions instead of amplifying and agitating them. Whew. All right, that was a little bit intense. But now, with all of that out of the way, it's time to get to the main event. And this final section is called the formula for the perfect niche audience. This is the moment that the rubber meets the road and you start to choose the audience that is going to be the foundation for your business. And this is the section where you're going to make a few educated guesses, put together a few hypotheses about the niche that you're going to be serving with your films. And I emphasize that they're hypotheses because it's really, really unwise to commit to any niche before you've done the research to validate it. Um, and again, that's coming up in the next installment in this series. But for now... I would like to introduce you to the formula for the perfect niche audience. And this is another one of those cases where in the article version of this, I have a graphic. And in that graphic, it's essentially a quadruple Venn diagram where it's four overlapping circles. So let me just describe how this, how this whole model works. The perfect niche audience is one that exists at the intersection of four distinct areas. Across the top row, there's your personal identity along with the films that you'd like to create. At the intersection of these two factors are the niche hypotheses that you'll take into the research phase. Then along the bottom row, you've got financial viability along with personal enjoyment. These are the things that you're going to look for and find out during the niche research process. And when you find a niche that lives at the intersection of all four factors, a niche that aligns with your own identity, the films that you want to make, a niche that is financially viable and that's enjoyable to serve, when you find that niche, you've got yourself a winner. That is the perfect niche audience to target with your films and to build a long-term business around. So that's just a quick overview of how the process works. Now let's break down each of these steps a bit more. So the first step is to pinpoint the elements of your personal identity. And it's really important to start here because doing so allows you to choose a niche that is deeply aligned with your existing interests and worldview. And I cannot stress how important this is. If you choose a niche just because you think it'll be super profitable, but you don't really care about the niche or the people in it, you're setting yourself up for apathy, frustration, and burnout, and probably financial failure as well. And that's because niche marketing and audience building are a marathon, not a sprint. To reap the financial rewards of this methodology, you've got to show up consistently for months and years on end. 
Not only that, you've got to consistently create content and media around this set of ideas, and you've got to interact with people in the niche. You need to build relationships and immerse yourself in this specific culture. If you're apathetic about the topic and the people you're serving, you just won't be able to sustain the energy and momentum required to make a business out of this. And the other side of that is if you're clearly not a member of that identity group, your niche is going to sense that intuitively, and they're going to tune you out. Or worse, they'll call you out as an imposter, which will completely undermine your chances of making money. And if you've spent much time on Reddit, you've probably seen that happen. When an outsider comes in and they have clearly commercial motives, the Redditors pounce, and it can be so brutal and also kind of fun to watch sometimes. But anyhow, whatever. Anyhow, that's one side of the equation. But however, when you choose a niche based on your own identity, using your own identity as a starting point, and then you commit to serving that group over the long term, amazing things stem from that decision. So first off, it's more profitable. As we've talked about before, sticking with a single niche is both the easiest and the most profitable path if your goal is to build a sustainable business around your films. Again, that means you don't just make one film for the niche and then bolt for another niche when it's time for a new project. It means you stick around producing multiple films for these people over the course of a few years or more. This is how you build an audience that you can sell to again and again. This is how you create true fans, that magical subset of your audience that will buy anything and everything you make. You stick around and you continue to serve. The second reason that this approach matters is that it's just more enjoyable and fulfilling to start from your own identity and then work from there. And part of that is that it's fun to create work around the topics, the ideas, or the people that you're passionate about. Making films about some piece of our identity essentially allows us to fill our own identity feedback loops. The other part of that is the deeply satisfying feeling that comes from connecting with and serving a community of people that you care about. And I don't know what it is, but serving people and being generous adds a certain psychological richness to life that you just can't get any other way. So yeah, do not skip this particular piece of the niche audience formula. Anyhow, when it comes to finding the elements of your personal identity, here are some questions for you to consider. First, what are the roles, ideas, or causes that define you? The things that make you most proud to be yourself, the things that make you most unique. Here's another. What identity-driven communities do you already belong to where you feel like you truly belong? And finally, what topics are you insanely invested in and, and curious about? I mean, like, you're curious enough to spend the next few years of your life actively invested and immersed in those cultures. So if it were me, I would set a timer for 10 to 20 minutes and then do some free writing based on these questions. And if you're not familiar with free writing, it's a technique where you basically try to write at the speed of thought. Not stopping to edit or think, you just keep writing and going and seeing what comes up. And I don't know what it is about this technique, but it really is good for pulling shit out of your subconscious and verbalizing a lot of what's going on in your mind. So once you've done that, you should have a nice big list of potential identity traits and interests and topics. Then it's time to move on to the second piece of the puzzle, which is about getting very specific on the types of films that you want to make. So your goal here is to understand ahead of time what kinds of stories will fulfill you creatively and sustain your interest and curiosity over multiple projects. Because again, our goal isn't to make a single film and then move on to something completely different. To build the most profitable, efficient film business, we need to find that vein of gold and continue to mine it over multiple projects. 
So here's some questions to get you thinking. Again, try doing some free writing to dig deep into these. What kinds of stories are you most driven to tell? The kinds of stories you'd be driven to tell even if there was no financial incentive to do so. Next, what topics or themes are you passionate about exploring through film or even through other types of media? Next up, what kinds of characters do you really want to see portrayed up on screen? What types of characters do you not see anywhere else in films or in media that you really want to see portrayed in some kind of meaningful, nuanced way? And then finally, what types of films would keep your interest over multiple years if you kept making them? Now, you might think you already know the answers to this, but again, I'm going to urge you not to skip this step and to do some deep thinking about it. Because when I first codified and taught this process last year in my Film Audience Blueprint course, um, this step wasn't part of it. The assumption was that there'd be plenty of overlap between your identity and the films that you'd like to make. However, taking that approach led to um, some issues, some inefficiencies. So people would come up with a list of identity traits and then dive straight into the niche research process, only to realize later on that they had indeed found a profitable, enjoyable niche but they had no desire to make films there. For instance, one of my students, um, he was really passionate about the health and fitness niche. And through his research, he knew it'd be a killer business. Um, like there's a lot of money to be made there. But at the end of the day, he had no desire to make fitness themed movies. So all of that prior effort was, was essentially wasted. So the point is you need to spend some time really thinking about the kinds of films that you wanna make and the types of stories that will fulfill you creatively. Only then should you look for crossover with your identity traits, and only the items in the crossover between your identity and the films you'd like to make should be taken into the research phase. And I know all of this sounds a little bit tedious, but I swear it's worth the effort. This whole process is designed to find the perfect marriage between your existing interests and creative sensibilities, and then pair all of that with an active and profitable niche. So when you work through this process, you're virtually guaranteed to come out the other end with a niche that'll allow you to build a profitable business all while telling the stories that you want to tell. And in the end, that's what it's all about. So please don't skip any of these steps because they are all there for a reason, I swear. And that reason is making the lives of indie filmmakers better and easier and more lucrative. Thank you, promise. So this next section is about the difference between substance and style when it comes to reaching niche audiences. So in the questions above, if you go back and listen, you'll notice that there's really no emphasis on style. I'm not asking you what genre of films you'd like to make or whether you're more invested in features or series or shorts or whatever. And that's 100% intentional. When you do your brainstorming or free writing, it's far more important to think about the substance, the underlying, the content of the stories that you wanna tell rather than the style. Counterintuitive as it may seem, those style considerations, which are indeed super important for mass market films, they don't matter much in the context of niche audiences. At the end of the day, niche audiences want to consume stories about the topics and ideas they care about, not necessarily any genre or style of film. And that's the huge liberating mindset shift that comes from adopting this niche entrepreneurial approach. Unlike the traditional film business, we no longer have to pigeonhole ourselves into a specific genre or a specific style. Instead, it's all about the stories we tell, the characters in those stories, and how they jive with specific identity groups. So take my obsession with jazz that I talked about earlier. Sure, Whiplash is a great drama, but I'd be equally invested in a comedy about jazz. 
Hell, someone could make a black comedy horror film where a disgruntled jazz studio player goes on a killing spree using his alto sax as his weapon of choice, and I would eat that shit up. I think that would be the most awesome movie ever. And as I'm saying this out loud, I think I should probably make that movie at some point Um, because I know there's a niche audience who are just as crazy invested in jazz as I would and who would find that hilarious. Anyhow. Another example of this is my friend Mike Dion, who I've talked about multiple times on the show. I've interviewed him. Um, We've done workshops together. The dude is awesome. Now, Mike has made his living for the past 10 years with a series of documentaries about the obscure sport of bikepacking, which is essentially like long-distance endurance um, cycling, a combination of biking and backpacking, essentially. Um, It's crazy, and it blows my mind that people choose to spend their time that way, but such is identity, man. It's crazy. Now, whenever I tell Mike's story, inevitably somebody says, well, yeah, of course that works for him because he's making documentaries. That would never work for narrative films. And I get that response because over the last 10 years, the vast majority of direct distribution or DIY distribution case studies, so there's just more evidence that it works there. But the thing is, the audience that Mike has built, they aren't passionate about documentaries. They're passionate about bikepacking. If tomorrow Mike were to come out with some weird experimental animated web series, but it was about bikepacking, his audience would probably be a little bit confused at first, as would I, but they would still eat it up. That's what the identity feedback loop is all about. These people are hungry for content that validates and reinforces that core piece of their identity. And Mike could feed them that content in any number of different flavors, and they would still be thrilled to death. So yeah, These ideas are applicable no matter what style of filmmaker you are. It works for narrative. It works for doc. It works for animation. It works for shorts, features, web series, podcasts, blogs, vlogs, and every other conceivable form of media. If you get the substance right, you can play around with style and genre without losing the interest of your niche. All right, and that brings us to the third, fourth, and final pieces of the niche audience formula. And those pieces are where you test your niche hypotheses in the market itself. It's all about doing your research and doing your due diligence. After all, one of the foundational rules of effective entrepreneurship is observing and listening to the market. That way, before you ever invest time and money and energy into an idea, you know there's a hungry, receptive market just waiting for whatever it is you're about to produce. In other words, it does not matter one bit how cool your niche ideas are or how excited you are about them. They still haven't been validated, so they're not worth a damn thing. If you dive into the niche research process and you discover that there's there's just no activity there, there's no demand for that type of content, you have to go back to the drawing board. It's the only smart way to go through this. And this, my podcast friend, is how you take a substantial amount of risk out of the film business. You do your research and you make sure your niche is financially viable before ever committing to it. Anyhow, when it comes to conducting niche research, there are two separate things that you need to validate before committing, and that's financial viability and personal enjoyment. And I won't get too deep here because, again, the next installment of this series is going to outline exactly how to do all of this step by step. But for now, here's a nice quick overview for you. First... You do some analytical research on your niche to make sure that it can actually support you financially. And here are some of the questions that you'll need to consider when doing this. One, does the niche have enough people in it to constitute your minimum viable audience? Remember, we talked about how to find that number earlier, so go back to that section if you need a refresher. Two, 
do the people in this niche consume and share content? And that's not just films, but articles, videos, podcasts, books, whatever. And is that content based in shared identity? Three, are there other filmmakers already serving this niche? If so, you might need to niche down further because, again, you don't want to be in a niche where there's too much competition. Fourth, are there other types of content creators making a living in the niche? If you see that there are social media influencers and bloggers and podcasters and media outlets who are making a living or who it looks like they're making a living from the outside, that's a really good signal that you can come in as a filmmaker and build a business around the media that you want to make. And fifth, I believe, I might have gotten lost in my numbering here, but the final question is, are there various organizations or influencers or just influential people in the niche at all that you could partner with that already reach a sizable portion of that audience? And we're going to talk so much about this in future lessons and future episodes, um, but it's really, really important for you to choose a niche where you can partner with influential people because it helps you reach so many more potential customers without having to advertise or anything like this. You create these strategic partnerships where it's win-win, and it's, it's just a huge thing. I can't go into it here, but it's so, so good. So that's that's what you're looking for in your viability research, and we're going to get way more into this in the next installment. But just thinking about these questions, even just a little bit, that puts you way ahead of about 99% of filmmakers who are trying to make money from their indie films. So yeah. Now, the second piece of the research process, it's all about finding out ahead of time if your niche is enjoyable. And this is simply about spending your time in the niche to see if it's a good fit for you personally. And this means having conversations in niche communities, consuming content, following other creators. Generally, you just need to be an engaged participant in the niche for an extended period of time. That's what it's all about. And more than anything else, you're just trying to judge whether spending your time in this niche will enrich your quality of life or degrade it. For instance, I can think of dozens of niches that would be insanely profitable at this point in time, most of them in like the political realm. Personally, I would hate every waking second spent in those hyper-political, hyper-partisan communities. And if my livelihood depended on being there day in and day out, I would grow to resent my niche along with my business as a whole. And that, my friend, is no bueno. That's a recipe for a bummer of a life. And that's why you need to validate ahead of time whether the niche is a good, enjoyable fit. It doesn't matter how profitable it could be. If you're going to hate being there, it's a moot point. Like I've mentioned a couple times already, building a niche business like this is a marathon, not a sprint. And though I have exactly zero interest in running a marathon, I have to assume they're a hell of a lot more enjoyable when you actually like running and you've got nice weather on race day. And when you validate ahead of time that your niche is going to be an enjoyable group to serve and that you're going to enjoy producing media for these people, it's the same thing. You're creating the circumstances and the environment you need to succeed over the long term and also have a blast in the process. And that is it, my friends. Holy shit, what a long piece of content. I have been reading this for like an hour and a half now, and my voice is just kind of hoarse at this point. I don't think I've ever talked this long. But before I leave you, um, here's a quick recap of all the big ideas we've covered today, because no joke, the ideas we've gone over are some of the most transformative you'll find anywhere in the indie film niche. So the first idea, number one, as indie filmmakers, we need to shift from producing genre-driven entertainment for the mass market 
to producing identity-driven media for one specific niche. Number two, genre is a valuable creative tool, but it's virtually worthless for niching down because we're still in a cutthroat competition with films and shows that have budgets 10,000 times bigger than ours. That is a losing proposition. Number three, people make spending and consumption decisions based on their identity. They also seek out and associate with others who share that piece of their identity. These two separate actions reinforce our identity traits and it results in identity feedback loops. Number four, identity feedback loops create tens or hundreds of thousands of viable niches online, maybe even millions. These niches are fueled by a deep psychological need to connect and to belong, as well as eager consumption of identity-specific products and media. Number five, therefore, creating media specifically tailored to one identity group is the best way to niche down and create product market fit with our films and ultimately to earn a living with micro-budget films. That's how we break free from Hollywood's game and instead play one that we can actually win. Number six, your minimum viable audience is the smallest possible niche that still enables you to hit your financial goals. Finding and focusing on your MVA is what allows you to niche down far enough that you are the dominant player and all other competition becomes irrelevant. Number seven, identity stacking is the art of combining two or more identity groups than focusing your attention on the crossover. It's a valuable tool for finding unserved markets and reaching your minimum viable audience. And finally, number eight, the perfect niche is the one that exists at the intersection of your identity, the films you want to make, and a niche that's both financially viable and enjoyable to serve. You find these latter two factors during the research phase. Now, I realize this whole approach to finding audiences is completely antithetical to how we were all taught to think about the business of filmmaking. But let's be honest here. Playing the same game as Hollywood has rarely, if ever, worked for indie filmmakers. Maybe during the mid-90s it did, but these days, I can't imagine a better recipe for endless frustration and financial failure than trying to replicate Hollywood's process. In a world where attention is scarce and generic media is abundant, we need new approaches that actually give us a chance at earning and keeping some of that attention for our films. And that's where this whole philosophy of identity-driven niches and marketing come in. This approach, though clearly not for everybody, gives micro-budget filmmakers a fighting chance to build a legitimate, profitable, long-term business around the films they care most about. For those of you brave enough to throw out everything you've been taught about the film business and start fresh with an open mind and a new methodology, you will be rewarded, both creatively and financially. So good luck to you, and Godspeed. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to revisit the ideas in today's episode, you can find the transcribed version as well as the full archive of shows over at filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. 
It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com slash newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace. Peace.